Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 308. Getting that what's in it for me messaging out to people, emphasizing the importance of getting together to figure out one of the biggest challenges facing the organization, then keeping them focused when they're on site, particularly today. Those are the kinds of things I think leaders struggle with the most. Hi there, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I sit down each episode with another successful and inspiring author, and we dig into their latest book and their unique insights on a number of topics, including things like leadership, personal growth, business, jobs and career, marketing and sales, entrepreneurship, and more. Today, we're joined by David Benjamin. He's co-author, along with David Komlos, of the new book, Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. I'll be asking David to share why it matters that you understand the fundamental differences between complex problems and merely complicated ones, the need to put your people on a collision course and why you'd want to do that, how to translate the clarity and insights you'll gain from using David's formula into action, and much, much more. As you're checking off your next actions on your next event, company retreat, workshop, or conference, I'd love to come alongside and help make it even better. I encourage you to check out my speaking page at readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking or write to me directly, jeff at read to lead podcast.com. David Benjamin is the co-founder of Centegrity and the chief architect behind its implementation of the complexity formula outlined in the book that we're diving into today. He regularly guides leaders and their teams through their application of the formula, helping them get uh, to decisions and actions in days, no matter the industry, type of challenge, or nature of the organization. And David has become a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies and government leaders in the process. His new book, co-written with David Komlos, is called Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. David, I'm excited to have you here. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. Well, I truly loved your book. I have been tasked with working with some radio stations in the near future. Uh, And one of the questions they're asking me is, if these signals were yours, Jeff, what would you do? And first of all, I don't think that's necessarily the right question to be asking. But I'm looking forward very much to getting in front of these these folks and considering uh, implementing what I've learned in your book, uh, because I think it's really the next step in the process for them. Yeah, interesting. Um, first of all, I, I do want to call out that I certainly noticed the radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the formula has such broad applicability. And as people are reading it and, and um, talking to us afterwards, I'm hearing two things. Uh, one is their own take on the sorts of complexities that they're facing or being asked to take control of, um, but also that they're finding value sort of as they go step by step through it um, in smaller ways where they can apply some of the insights on their everyday meetings or whatever it is they do as over the course of the week. 
Well, something I found helpful as I began diving into the book and, and a place I'd like to start, and I think it's good for context, is to define the difference between uh, complex problems and, and ones that are merely just complicated. There is a pretty big difference, isn't there? Yeah, we like to talk about um, complicated challenges as being sort of very mechanistic, step by step, you can find a solution every time because they're basically deterministic. Uh, So for example, fixing a car, what makes it complicated is that not everyone can do it. So you might need to hire an expert, a mechanic to fix your car, but with the right person being given the task, they can follow sort of a step by step formula to make their way through to a solution every time. So if you contrast that with something that is uh, complex, complexity is really categorically different. Hmm. Lots of moving parts, non-deterministic, no clear starting point or end point, and no blueprint that really encapsulates everything that's different and unique this time to whatever the challenges that you're facing. So you might not be the first company that's trying to grow, but you shouldn't expect that you can pick up a blueprint for growth um, from any other company operating at any other time and have it directly apply to what you're trying to do. So complexity is really about something new every time, uh, no off-the-shelf solutions, a lot of moving parts, a lot of interdependencies, and the need to figure it out uh, with fresh solutions each time. And going through that process the first time and getting to the crux of a problem might involve then down the road starting all over again with the formula, right? Yeah, that's right. Because if you think about the pace at which things are changing, technology, customer expectations, whatever it is in your world, uh, complexity has really become a business as usual sort of uh, thing in, in any organization. So you need to expect that each time that you try to do something that is complex, it's going to be different and you have to start over. I would imagine uh, from time to time you get pushback from leaders who might think that this is an attempt at a, a one-size-fits-all solution. Do you find that anybody ever has the problem with just the general idea of a formula? I think if they have uh, a problem with it, it's that it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> right. to have a formulaic approach to, to solving something that isn't formulaic. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what is attractive to people once you sort of get past that hurdle is the notion that this is a machine, that this is something that you can take step by step to find solutions. So it's not the solution, but it's a means to find the solution. And then how you go about implementing it, as I'm sure we'll get into with a few more of your questions, is really more of a sort of creative process involving a wide mix of people and treating whatever it is you're trying to solve for as something that needs fresh eyes, fresh solution. How did you manage to develop this? I'm assuming it was a lot of trial and error over many, many years. Yeah. Again, as we say in the book, we didn't create this from whole cloth. Um, We started with some IP in the early uh, 2000s. Um, And the IP, you would say, is reflected in the formula in sort of steps five through eight or something Mm. like that. Um, What we had to do is figure out how to apply it in commercial spaces because it was largely IP that was uh, developed in the academic setting and more theoretical. We had to figure out in the North American market what it meant to do the things that the IP required and then Mm. what had to happen before, what had to happen after to really give it teeth and have it land properly in a commercial setting where everything is at stake and and, uh, pressure is high. Well, I think this may be a good time to ask, and I, for one, appreciated the example stories that are that are weaved into and, and throughout the book that sort of help drive it home. Can you share an example of, of how the formula works, generally speaking, in, in, in practice? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a story uh, from oil and gas industry as an example, and I'm not going to name names, <laughs> but um, this is a, a company that 
acquired uh, two companies over the course of probably the last five years. And they acquired them with the intention of putting them together, uh, integrating the two companies and getting sort of a one plus one equals three result. Mm. So prior to actually taking the step of integrating them, they applied the formula with a cross-section of leaders from both organizations in an intensive I can't remember specifically if it was two or three days together, uh, where they walked through the key steps of the formula facilitated by us and made their way through from a real lack of trust and you know fear about the implications of the integration and no common brand and products that in some cases were in competition with each other that now had to be complements to each other and so on. And they very quickly went from that to alignment um, and clarity on what had to happen to hit the ground running and hit some pretty aggressive revenue targets. So that's an example of where it might be used, but really anything that's complex, growth, taking out cost, revitalizing the transportation infrastructure of a city, uh, adapting to the changing reality of your industry, the stories cover all that ground. I think one of my favorite steps uh, among the 10 was step seven, uh, putting people on a collision course. One aspect of this is the model for complexity, this many-to-many model. Talk about how uh, what you do with clients differs from the more traditional hub-and-spoke model. Yeah, so the traditional hub-and-spoke model, if you think of a wagon wheel, the hub-and-spoke model is sort of an expert-based model where it presumes that there is somebody who really does know more or less what needs to be done and just needs to be informed by the right group of people from in and around whatever organization they're working on behalf of. So they set up a sequence of interviews with the various functions and bring people in one at a time or several at a time ask all the right questions, and really inform the hub with all the stimulus the hub needs to be able to go off then and and crack a solution. And if you think about traditional consulting as an example of that model, the solution might take months. Hmm. uh, It might take more than a year. Uh, When it comes back, there's the need to, first of all, convince senior leadership that it's a good solution and show whatever research, et cetera, would support that. And then this is where the model really breaks down with something complex. The next job is to get people implementing and executing Mm -hmm. uh, in the direction that the hub is produced. And the problem there is that interviews don't build understanding or alignment or belief amongst the people who are interviewed. Uh, So you need to get into things like change management and persuasion campaigns. You have passive resistance and like a human body, you know, that detects a foreign substance and fights it off, that Mm. tends to be what happens if the organization itself hasn't got its fingerprints on the solution in a meaningful way. So when you do many to many, again, it starts with the premise that you need to involve all the right people. But now what you do is rather than intermediating them with a hub, you connect them directly with each other and you give them the means to co-create the right answers, build belief, build consensus, reach a shared understanding, get aligned. And then you've got the right people also mobilized and believing that it's the right solution. And so you'll see much better success with execution. I liked too the detail in regard to these meetings and what they look like and how to conduct them. And I was wondering if you could maybe unpack a little bit more just this idea of putting people on a, on a collision course, basically. What, what does that look like in, in the real world? Yeah, there's actually quite a few ingredients that we talk about in terms of um, colliding people effectively. Mm. So first of all, you start with the right people. So there's this notion of requisite variety that you have to have 
a matching variety of people to kind of match the multidimensionality of whatever you're trying to solve for. So it's not your same old people. It's not your usual suspects. Because we often deal with highly complex challenges, the leaders that we're working with, requisite variety might amount to large groups of people, let's say 40 people. So first of all, you can't put them on a collision course, those 40 people, without some sort of structure, some sort of orchestration, because you end up with sort of 40 people at a banquet or 40 people around a boardroom table if you don't have structure. And that's just chaos. And we've all been there and we know how bad those meetings can be. So with structure, what you're doing is you're creating smaller pockets of collisions in an orchestrated and organized way. Um, And when we talk about sort of the right number of people to be collided at any given time, we go to Jeff Bezos' uh, two pizza rule. I don't know if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means eight people or fewer, not too many to share two large pizzas is, is how that goes. But eight people can have an effective conversation. So most of the times when we're actually helping leaders put people together for these collisions, they have been broken down into groups that have no more than eight people speaking at a given time. And then we'll do that by having, you know, not just eight people speaking, and we call that the member role, people who are owning whatever the conversation is and driving for answers, but an additional group of people with them called critics. So these very specific behavioral roles force anyone who is a member to speak, um, to be frank, to be open, to listen. And during the course of their conversation, we'll pause them a couple of times and bring in critics. And the role of the critic is not to advance the conversation. It's to help the members really get very pointed in their thinking, to push them along if they're stuck, to challenge the group to do better, and just give them at just the right time, very concisely, some really strong guidance on how they can further advance their conversation. So those behavioral roles, you know, are are another aspect of these collisions. The critic role is there to keep things very frank you know, people don't need to be polite. They need to be constructive, challenge each other, push. Mm. The collisions are abrupt. Um, they're short. We don't get people um, in these conversations for long periods of time. Just very focused and effective. And then most importantly, that the people are colliding uh, on something that really matters to them, something that they're passionate about, something that's important. So rather than telling our group of 40 people beforehand what they have to talk about, the first First step in applying the kind of on-site component of the formula Hmm. is to get them to set their own agenda, to take sort of the overarching statement of complexity and figure out what they need to and want to talk about in order to answer whatever the question is that's been put in front of them. And that, that's that's a pretty big deal. I, I think so that last thing you mentioned about setting the agenda, you walk into these these two and three day meetings without an agenda. You're setting the agenda first thing. And I think that's maybe tough to grasp for a lot of leaders. Am I, am I wrong about that? Yeah, it's it's different and it's disarming in some ways. Um, but sure, it's a it's always a bit of an eye opener for people. And it's not that there's an, uh, an absence of a schedule uh, right. in that sense of an agenda. But what's missing is what it is people need to talk about. Mm. And the basic premise there is that um, you can completely rig a meeting if uh, you are in control of the agenda. So rather than sort of setting it up so that you could write the minutes before the meeting happens, (laughs) um, you have the group, the right group of people, look at, again, an overarching statement of the challenge, which we usually use a question to express the challenge. Um, So the leader has crafted a really good question The group then spends a good half a day deconstructing that question into a set of topics that they need to cover. And this is the beginning of getting their fingerprints on the answers is to let them decide how to get at the answers themselves. 
Talk about this this myth of uh, something I think a lot of leaders deal with is thinking that within their own ranks, they don't have the talent necessary to tap into to solving these complex problems. Uh, in your view, that's a myth. Yeah. Um, and it might be true that, in fact, it usually is true that there are gaps. If I only look at the people that I have in and around my organization, in some cases, if you're dealing with large uh, institutions that have existed for a long time, people have grown up within those institutions. So how, how could they possibly be expected to think outside of the box? Or, you know, my people are the people who've been struggling with this for two years. Why would I expect that all of a sudden they can figure something out that's new? So, so certainly there's reason to believe that um, you don't have all the answers within your organization. Um, but when you think about augmenting the right people from within the organization with the right mix of people who are outside, um, which might include some of your partnering uh, subject matter expert consultants, uh, it might be some of your vendors. Um, we always certainly encourage a leader to think about how they can represent the customer directly in their conversations. So you take a cross-section of the right people internally, covering the hierarchy, covering the functions, the business units, etc. Add to that some talented people from the outside. Um, and as I said, customers, vendors, partners, uh, environmental experts, people who understand the environment that you're operating in. And now you're getting at requisite variety. You're getting at the right variety of people uh, to augment and, and add to as necessary the talent from within. David, is there any particular area or areas you find in having helped leaders and companies apply this again and again, where they tend to struggle more than, uh, than others when, when applying the, the formula? It's, it's really fundamental and, and crucial that you get the right mix of people. And we really do talk very passionately and we talk for long times about what that mix of people means. And so some of the difficulty for leaders who are doing this, particularly the first time, is first of all, letting go of the usual suspects, letting some of the senior leaders in the organization know that they're not going to be directly involved at this stage in working on strategy, for example, mm. because we only need a representative set of the business unit leaders, for example. Right. Being comfortable bringing the sales force into the conversation and pulling them out of the field for you know two or three days so that they can have a hand in building the solutions um, and just really convincing people because it's so hard to get people away from their desks these days with the onslaught of email um, and social media and trying to keep up. It's really hard to convince people that one or two days away from the desk is going to be valuable to them and to the organization. Getting that what's in it for me messaging out to people, emphasizing the importance of getting together to figure out one of the biggest challenges facing the organization, and then keeping them focused when they're on site, particularly today. Those are the kinds of things I think leaders struggle with the most. Mm. You mentioned execution earlier. I loved the graphic in the book of the two bookshelves and the one on the left labeled strategy with all these trophies and the bookshelf on the right labeled execution that was dilapidated and falling apart. Right. <laughs> what, yes. what, what can leaders do to make sure the plans that result from putting the formula into practice actually get put into action? So first of all, again, I keep coming back to this notion of variety. One of the mm. really important things, and it almost seems obvious, is to include the doer's um, during the creation of strategy and during the planning phase, not after. Um, let them raise the objections, understand the importance of certain things and why they're being done. Get them believing and aligned and in consensus on what the right plan is. And they're far more likely 
to execute. Um, so involving the doers is one of those things. And then when the plan exists, when you've when you've achieved alignment, you've got people not only understanding and believing, but actually excited and full of hope that we can overcome it. Then it's a matter of, first of all, whoever the sponsor, the senior leader is that's been involved to stay very visually, very um, front and center, visibly involved and championing um, and participating in regular reviews of progress. Uh, and then the other thing that we've learned over time is to, you know, besides communicating back to your group of requisite variety very regularly about where you are and how you're proceeding, every now and then getting people back together, let's say six months later, to report back on progress and reset as necessary. Because again, complexity doesn't stand still. And as you're in the middle of implementing something, many important things can change and assumptions can be proven wrong. So getting people back together to realign is also an important step. Uh, when I first picked up the book, David, I had this notion that this was going to be a dry, plotting read, and it was anything but. I ended reading this book with a feeling of, I can't wait to apply what I've learned. And I Great. really uh, appreciate the effort that you and your co-author, David, uh, put into that, because it, it was a fun read. I didn't want to put it down. I read it in just you know a couple of days, and, and I think you guys have done a great job here. Um, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book, but uh, before that, is there anything else from the book that you want to make sure we walk away with that I didn't maybe didn't ask about? Well, actually, I'm a bit disappointed because I thought what you're going to say is that you opened the book and you saw the photo and thought we were both dashingly handsome. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> there's that, too. Um, no, we, we uh, I think if there's one thing that I would want people to know even before they pick up the book is that this is not theory. Um, mm. This is not uh, an abstraction. This is not a couple of guys who dream something up and and you know, think it works or think it might work. Mm -hmm. we, we have been doing this for 18 years. It's, it's actually amazing to watch it unfold differently every time because you're dealing with different groups every time and different challenges, but with strikingly similar statements of the experience when you talk to people afterwards. You could almost script some of the things that people <laughs> say about the experience because it is a machine. Um, and I think a lot of people who look at the cover and look at the topic think dry textbook and theory and another theory book. And really, it's not. I think we, we really dug into the stories to make sure that we were trying to bring it to life in terms of the experience of being in the room and experiencing a different kind of conversation. And what I would tell you, just to put a fine point on all of that, is that we actually had the manuscript ready um, six weeks before our deadline and then applied the formula to the book, to the <laughs> manuscript. And we were the nervous leaders saying, you know, all we want is a few tweaks here and there because we only have six weeks. And what we got was nearly a complete rewrite, structurally at least. Wow. And, and I can tell you it's a far better book because um, the right group of people got their hands on it early and told us how to change it. Wow, that's great. Well, I know throughout the book, you reference a number of other thought leaders and, and authors, and I'd love to know over the course of your career, what are the books that have impacted you? What have you gone back to again and again? Uh, I will tell you um, with a little bit of shame that I am uh, primarily a reader of fiction. And oh, there's no shame in that. In science fiction. <laughs> no shame um, in that. I, I, in fact, have read very few um, business books. And I, I think that works at least to my personal advantage in mm. terms of um, being very open-minded and, and sort of stimulus-bound when 
when taking in what works and what doesn't work. I did the same thing, by the way, when I had my daughters, is I refused to pick up a book that told me how to be a father. Um, I'd rather learn it as I go. Um, but in terms of some really good books that uh, really did strike me, I had a trusted CEO friend slash customer of ours tell me that the greatest leadership book he ever read was, I think it's called um, Team of Rivals, mm. Doris Kearns Goodwin, and it's about Lincoln and how he embraced the variety around him in the form of you know, his political opponents, et cetera, and brought them into his inner circle where he was making decisions and wrestling with problems. And he, the book just tells the story of how that advanced everything that Lincoln was working on. So in terms of the connection to what we do, I felt that was very powerful. And, um, and one of the early podcasts that I did, just to mention another book, was uh, with, I think it's called Getting to Yes And, Kelly Leonard, mm. um, where he applies lessons from Second City to business. And what really struck me about that book is because we had just written our book, I was reading his book, and the overlap and the parallels. Um, and uh, as I said to him, the Venn diagram uh, between the two books, the, the middle section was enormous. And it was such a validation to me that lessons from, you know, that creative sphere and comedy had so much common ground with the lessons we'd experienced in business. So, you know, I did go back and sort of reread it then with an eye to the business we're in and, and what we do and how we can use those insights to enrich the experience for our customers. I love that. Uh, and I own a copy of Team of Rivals. There is no shame in <laughs> on business books. Uh, let me ask you this. I know you do a, a good amount of public speaking. Um, I would love to know uh, from your experience, what, is, what have you found to be helpful in delivering a talk that's going to last, that's going to uh, truly impact your audience and be memorable and impactful? Uh, I think a more general statement that goes beyond just presenting is that you know people are just people. It, I, I don't care what position they have or how they got where they are. Hmm. Um, in terms of their prominence in a business or in a very prominent business, um, being a senior leader of an organization of 80,000 people, that's great, but they are still human beings who had a childhood and got mm. where they are you know, on a path that, that was their own. So if you sort of think of the people in your audience as they shouldn't be intimidating at all, they're, they're people who are here to hear something mm. of value that you can give them. I also think you can greatly over-prepare and come across as scripted and repetitious of things you've said in mm. other in other settings. Uh, I, I like to lightly prepare, understand my audience, think about some of the stories that will resonate with them, and then do a lot of uh, winging on stage and kind of respond to the reactions you're getting from people in the room. More of that uh, improv study coming into play, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And actually, one other thing that I found really valuable, and I'm half kidding, but <laughs> mostly not kidding, is that doing a few rehearsals in front of some staff members here who were sort of under 28. <laughs> mm. For a guy my age, it was very interesting because, you know, that generation is very outspoken and they're very used to things like TED Talks mm. and um, absorbing information in ways that, you know, we didn't grow up absorbing uh, in those ways. And so they're fantastic at really just giving you feedback on what's working, what's not working, how to make it better. And I was very pleasantly surprised by that. Well, um, now the book has been out now for about, I guess, what, uh, nine or 10 months, something like that, almost a year. Um, what are you guys currently working on that you're excited about? Well, 
we have carried the burden of um, having to help people through the formula for years and years mm. um, because we really hadn't done what we did in writing the book, which is to sit down and talk about how to uh, make it almost a do-it-yourself thing. So as we speak, we are working on uh, an addition to our sort of we deliver it business model where we're going to be equipping people to uh, do it themselves, uh, to become practitioners to become experts in complexity. Um, we hope to get on the curriculum of, of some universities in terms of not just complexity for business people uh, and mm. ways to approach it, but also, for example, in health. Uh, there's, there's bits of this that every medical practitioner should understand mm. who works in a team or is part of a bigger organization. So we're going down that path, and I'm very, very excited about that. I am excited to hear you say that. I was hoping you were going to uh, say something along those lines, so that's really cool to hear. I love to keep up with that as that, uh, as that unfolds. Yeah. Well, well, the book, again, is called Cracking Complexity, the Breakthrough Formula for Solving Just About Anything Fast, written by David Benjamin and David Comless. David Benjamin, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Read to Lead podcast. Loved having you here. Thank you, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Hey, if you like what you heard and you'd like to connect with David and his team, I've made that super simple for you. You can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 308 for episode 308. And there you'll find links to the resources and books that David mentioned, including his company's website, how to connect with him on Twitter, LinkedIn, and elsewhere. I hope you'll check that out. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 308. Hey, do keep me in mind if you're looking for a speaker for your next event, conference, or workshop, especially as it pertains to topics on leadership and personal and professional growth. You can visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking to find out more on me or email me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Next time on the podcast, we'll be welcoming Celeste Headley as we dive into her book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Thank you.